future. There are no people. There are no people in the future. No people at all. There are no people in the future. Where did all my people go? There are no people in the future. Let me try my people call. Everybody, everybody, welcome, welcome. Yes, here we are again. It is a Friday. It's Friday, January 27th, 2023. Welcome to Raging Chickens Friday Politics Roundup. Yes, this is Kevin Mahoney, creator and founder of Raging Chicken. Each week we break down the good, the bad, and the ugly in state and national politics. You can support this show by becoming a patron for as little as five bucks a month. Those are five bucks a month. Head on over to patreon.com slash rcpress today. Become a patron, help support independent progressive media right here. Right here, wherever you get your streams, that kind of fun stuff. You can also help to support the show by heading over to our YouTube channel if you're not there already. Smash that subscribe button, like the stream for this show, hit that notification bell so you know every time that we go live. And friends, yes, uh, here we are, and we're going to talk a lot about this stuff today. But man, we cannot let Paul Martino and his oligarch friends buy our schools and push extremist politics in our community as they are trying to do, <laughs> as they are doing. Let me trying to do, as they are doing. Raging Chicken has teamed up with Levelfield to launch a truly community-rooted pack to invest in organizing, supporting local and statewide progressive candidates, and unmasking the toxic organizations injecting our communities with right-wing extremism. We're putting small-dollar donations to work to beat back the power of big money. You can get more information and drop your donation at ragingchicken.levelfield.net. That's ragingchicken.levelfield.net. In this week's show... Well, the U.S. and Germany are sending a whole bunch of tanks over to Ukraine as the war continues into its second year and Russia issues new threats. Uh, later today in Memphis, Tennessee, the police department there will release video of the brutal and fatal police beating of the 27-year-old Tyree Nichols. The five police officers who fatally beat Nichols have been fired and are facing second-degree murder charges. On that. And PA based libertarian billionaire, yes, the richest man in Pennsylvania, Jeffrey Yass, is funding a new political action committee called the Moderate Pact that will target progressives primary challengers in favor of centrist and corporate Democrats. Right? So the pact has been set up by these centrist corporate Democrats, but the only donor is Jeffrey Yass, the right wing Republican conservative mega donor. Right. You get how this works. Right. So corporate Democrats as a way of scaring off the progressive challengers. Right. Because those corporate Democrats are serving not us, but the corporations and the right wing. So they're teaming up with Jeffrey Yass in order to make sure that progressives lose their primaries. How about that? How about that? Yes, speaking of corporations, colleges and universities are starting to hire what's called chief experience officers. Yes, to go ensure that consumers are having satisfying interactions with the institutions. Yes, this is the latest in uh, practices imported from the corporate world. As if we don't have enough already, 
We're going to have chief experience officers in the coming future. Now, listen, there's only, we should say, right, uh, there's only a few college universities who, uh, who've adopted this officially and have hired for these CEOs or CXOs, they call them. Um, however, I'm putting my money on the fact that this is in the bloodstream of every college university, certainly my college university. Right. So just like, for example, when you had the opportunity to basically ensure that like under like, you know, first generation, uh, first first generation underrepresented kids kind of get the resources they need to for their success in, this, in college. Is that more important? Right. Is a positive student to faculty ratio more important or is new signage at the university for its public relations campaign more important? We know which way that went. It cuts down. New signage. New signage. Because it's going to attract the consumers. Right? And now we need to make sure those consumers are happy in their mall environments. I could go on and on. A little closer to home. It's been a uh, wild week in Pennsylvania. Uh, we're going to focus primarily today on what's happening right here in Bucks County. Because uh, it's a shit show. Let's put it pretty plainly. Uh, we're seeing the new censorship policy in Central Bucks School District in action. A librarian in Central Bucks High School was told uh, by his principal to take down a quote by Ellie Vissell, the Nobel Laureate Holocaust survivor. You know him, right? Because why? Why do you have to take it down? Well, because it violated the district's new ban on advocating, quote, partisan political or social policy issues to students. Yeah, well, after a big hubbub and after the fact that the librarian is like, you know, okay, what are the consequences going to be if I refuse to take it down? After that, uh, the principal kind of maybe got a little worried, maybe got on the phone, maybe the lawyers got him a call, I don't know. But later reversed his order and left it. But, you know, that's not without leaving a big chilling effect on everybody else who's thinking about putting up a quote. Because, like, Black History Month's coming up. Uh-oh. We know that's what's being targeted here. Now, to make matters worse, this is right ahead of Holocaust Remembrance Week, right? Um, Awareness Week, right? So this is like happening at it's like probably the worst possible time uh, for the principal to do this. But let's be clear, it wasn't the principal that did it. It's that new right-wing-backed school board that were funded by people like, you got it, Paul Martino, who we mentioned at the top thing, at the, at the top of the show. And right down the road, just head up 313 to click, right? Why? Well, here in Penridge School District, well, they are seeking to impose versions of the Hillsdale College 1776 curriculum on teachers and students. Now, for those of you not in the know, Hillsdale College is an infamous right-wing Christian college in Michigan that has been fueling flames of resentment and pushing forward a whitewashed curriculum of charter and public schools across the country. Right, Hillsdale College is also famous for the fact that it refuses all federal funds Right. And takes big money from people like, I don't know, the Betsy DeVos and company takes big money for them. Why? So that they can discriminate. <laughs> yes. So they're not taking any money from the government so that they can discriminate. That's who we're talking about at Hillsdale College. Hillsdale College is also famous for being a kind of a, you know, providing a direct line right, to the talk radio and uh, kind of right-wing conservative media circuit and to, like, federal courts, right? So it's designed its curriculum on that campus in order to kind of set up and train the next generation 
of conservative media personalities. They actually have a studio that's fully funded, available for conservative right-wing media anytime they want in Washington, D.C. Right? And, right, they also got to make sure that they've got that straight line through the federal society and into the conservative bench in order to enact their agenda. This is a messianic college with lots and lots of funds behind it. Well, they put together after Trump did his like 1776 commission, remember? Because he was so mad that there was the, the 1619 project that came out of the New York Times when they actually, did, I don't know, sought to tell real history, the whole story, what the experience was like. What if we started telling the story about America from that first slave ship that landed in Virginia, 1619, right? That came out on the 500th anniversary of that settling of that first slave ship? Well, no, no, no. Kind of the white folks in the Trump circle and the kind of right wing kind of circle and a whole bunch of other folks couldn't take that. So they had the 1776 project to whitewash that history. Well, Hillsdale College was thrilled about that and frankly probably had a lot to do with it to begin with. Um, so they started kind of developing their own curriculum for K through 12 schools that was called the 1776 curriculum, which in a matter of, I don't know, seconds, Joan Cullen and the kind of Cretans up here in the, Pe in the Penridge School District basically picked up on that and been trying to push it. Well, they're officially kind of making it, making the push to install it in the Penridge School District, despite being a curriculum from a right-wing Christian college, right? Yeah, because it turns out at the school board meeting last week, they basically came out and said, yeah, look, we're just going to have this as an overlay. Nobody saw it coming. There wasn't a big announcement about it, but they're just going to push it in there as an overlay to the curriculum, a right-wing conservative Christian curriculum. Yep. Now, if you need anything more about this kind of uh, about Kilsdale College, if you take a look at the president, Larry Arn, maybe this provides a little bit of a window into um, this college's beliefs. In 2013, Arn referred to minority students as dark ones in legislative hearings. How about that? And earlier this summer, right, in the midst of Hillsdale partnership to take over charter schools in the state, right, because the conservative governor of Tennessee basically said to Hillsdale College, hey, why don't you come in and run our charter schools? Because that's a good use of public funds. Right. So, OK. So Arn was captured in a private meeting with the governor, basically telling the governor of Tennessee that, quote, teachers are trained in the dumbest parts of the dumbest colleges in the country, unquote. How about that? So that's uh, what my kids are looking forward as my son will soon be making the decisions about which courses he will be taking in high school. And this is the kind of nonsense that we'll be dealing with. A little backdrop, we'll also see what's happening there with the uh, in Florida, whereas uh, uh, Governor DeSantis, basically Florida Governor DeSantis is remaking the new college in Sarasota in uh, as the Hillsdale of the South. We'll take a little peek for context there. It's quite a day. It's quite a day. Hey, for more PA Progressive Talk, tune to the Rick Smith Show's live stream at 9 p.m. Eastern on his YouTube channel, Twitter, Facebook, and subscribe to his podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Head on over to the ricksmithshow.com for the latest across all his platforms. And you got to check out the Sisters of the Night Caucus podcast, the amazing PA women stirring the political cauldron behind this podcast. Rock the house. And they know where the bodies are buried. Make sure to follow on Twitter at, at the Night Caucus. That's at the Night Caucus on Twitter. And subscribe to their podcast on Anchor, Spotify, iTunes, or wherever you get your podcasts. Crazy, crazy, crazy. 
And for all you gamers out there, the Game Inn is a Quaker Town-based black family-owned gaming store. They're friends of the show, and they've got everything for retro N64s, the latest consoles, video games for all platforms, collectibles, action figures, Funko Pops, walls of Funko Pops, and kids get discounts for A's in the report card. Can't beat it. Check them out on their Facebook page and follow them on Twitter at, at the Game Inn. That's with two N's. Got a question about a game, looking for something hard to get? Shoot them a message or drop them an email at thegameinpa at gmail.com. A shout-out goes once again to Jonathan Mann, who wrote our intro song, There Are No People in the Future. Check out all his great stuff on his YouTube page and follow him on Twitter at, at @songadayman. That's at @songadayman on Twitter. And we got some announcements for Out the Coop Live for upcoming shows. Uh, we're still working on someone for this coming Monday. Um, scheduling seems to be like tricky right about now. Um, for a lot of people, for a lot of different reasons, it's really kind of funny. Um, not funny, but just kind of, it just it seems to be there. Um, so we'll uh, get back to you what's happened on Monday. It might be just kind of, uh, might be just me again. And I know that will uh, disappoint a lot of folks. Um, but coming up on February 6th, we have Hannah Leffingwell. Uh, we're going to be talking about her recent piece in the Chronicle of Higher Education called The Academic Career is Broken. And we'll talk about the need for fundamental change in higher education. Um, we're also going to take a look at, uh, on Monday, the uh, February 13th, Alyssa Bowen will be back on the show talking about her recent piece uh, in Truthout called The Right Has Expanded Its Dark Money Strategy for Dominating School Boards and the Deep Pockets Behind It All. And look, everybody, if you want progressive future, we need progressive media. Support Pull No Punches, homegrown progressive media today, right? <clears throat> Um, head on over to patreon.com slash rcpress to become a member from a patron, really, for as little as five bucks a month. All right, we're here for the fight, but we need you. Become a patron for the price of a good beer once a month. Help keep the media in the movement, the movement in the media. Become a patron for as little as five bucks a month. Head on over to patreon.com slash rcpress today. Well, welcome, everybody. Welcome, Emily. Welcome, Kelly. Uh, it's great having some folks uh, kind of in the live uh, in the live broadcast today. Let us know what's on your mind. Emily, right off the bat. Yes, I was going to mention this, Emily. Um, we had uh, basically a uh, 321 protest in front of CB West last Friday. That was in uh, the kind of anti-speech clampdown on social justice kind of, you know, <laughs> discrimination against LBGTQ youth uh, protest that took place in front of CB West uh, last Friday. Friday, um, Emily said she was there, right? And the students were amazing. Uh, you head on over to the Bucks County Beacon. Uh, Bucks County Beacon has got a great photo essay on um, on that protest in front of CB West um, last Friday. Really, really awesome. Um, <clears throat> pretty, pretty great. Um, so today, like I said, right at the top, you know, I, I feel kind of an obligation, right? We're looking at the kind of at the national level here. Look uh, here. For a bit of a, uh, you know, I feel kind of sort of obligation to kind of make sure that we're kind of keeping an eye on what's happening over in Ukraine. I mean, it's uh, if you remember about this time last year is when um, this whole war started, the invasion, Russia's invasion of the Ukraine took place. And um, uh, it's the kind of thing that, you know, I don't know if you want to say this is just part of like human nature, if you want to say it's part of our particular culture, I'm not so sure. Um, but, you know, as time passes, people stopped uh, paying attention so much. And, um, you know, uh, Russia has issued his new round of attacks. It's kind of a new bombing has been devastating uh, whole communities there. Um, the U.S. and Germany have, were, have been in talks and they have finally have committed to send a whole bunch of tanks to Ukraine, as it looks like Ukraine is going to be making a push to take some of its territory back. Um, I don't think there's any way of 
looking at this is one of just the devastating toll in humanity. And uh, I'm the last kind of person that's going to be a warmonger here um, in in any way, shape or form. And I find it difficult to see the way some of the reporting um, comes out where it's this kind of rah, rah, go, go kind of reporting. And I'm just constantly reminded of the, the, the devastation and the lives lost um, and, and uh, of this thing. But at the same time, we, you know, we're seeing the face of authoritarianism, a militarized authoritarianism um, within Putin's invasion of Ukraine. And uh, it's I think these kind of questions are going to be increasingly with us in the, in the coming years, not just with Russia. Um, but with other pushes from authoritarians to begin uh, wanting to go beyond, you know, simply controlling their own kind of nation state borders, but beginning wanting to exert their influence um, outward. And I'm thinking particularly about, you know, Erdogan in Turkey. I'm thinking about, you know, um, I'm thinking about Hungary. You know, I'm thinking about these kind of authoritarian regimes that keep on poking up. I'm thinking about, um, you know, the, the pushes, what we see in the kind of the, re, the revitalized fascism in, in uh, Italy. I mean, these are going to be increasingly part of our lives. Um, and as we've seen in our own experiences here with the, you know, the return of, you know, publicly, you know, outed uh, or out, you know, self-outed, I guess, uh, white supremacist um and election deniers we saw the authoritarianism of donald trump um and you know i think what's happening in ukraine is 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 gives us a little bit of a window into what this what the potentials are here and why this becomes so important and especially you know no matter where you are in terms of the war stuff to be able to make sure that the you know the people are not going to be you know people are always the ones like the the civilians are always the ones who are who take it the worst in these in areas where wars are being fought um in addition to the direct loft of loss of lives from um combatants so here we go we'll see where this goes as a new round of threats come out and so on um i'm sure people have heard about this and have been following this a little bit um the story in uh in tennessee about the uh, brutal fatal be um, beating of tyree nichols uh, he's a 27-year-old African-American man um, who was really beaten in kind of the Rodney King kind of genre of police brutality, if you will. Um, now, you know, 30, I was almost 30 years ago, I think, the Rodney King beating um, kind of made into the news because it was recorded on video. And this was in the early stages of uh, personalized video. Um, but Rodney King survived that. Um, Tyree Nichols did not. Um, and, uh, I think it is a, is a good, a positive sign in some ways to see that, um, these officers have been basically released, um, and are facing second degree murder charges. <clears throat> That's all good. Um, what makes this case a little bit, uh, a, a little bit, uh, different from the rest of them, right? Is that all of the police officers, uh, that were involved in the, uh, fatal beating were also African-American. Um, and I think this is going to be interesting to see how this takes shape. And I'm just one, you know, again, my first thought is like, I wonder if that made it easier for the police department there to press charges is the fact that they could just play in. They didn't need to kind of have to defend whiteness, right? They could just play into the racial stereotypes and basically saying, oh, look, these cops are, these cops are criminals. Um, and you see some of that discourse coming out of the way that, um, that it's being discussed. This is a criminal act. And 
that allowed for an easy kind of uh, prosecution. Now, <clears throat> I'm not to say that that was 100 percent the uh, uh, the reason. Um, but I'm also encouraged by some of the language that is coming out around this prosecution that is beginning to look not simply not basically saying the problem is just racist white police officers, but the police themselves. Right. Um, and the way that people policing happens in this country, the militarized nature of policing this country, the kind of um, what was the word that they were using? Groupthink is the word they come and think the groupthink mentality of violence um, against, um, you know, like unarmed <laughs> people, you know, whether or not these people um, have, you know, had a actual traffic violation, if they may have, you know, committed some small crime as kind of part of this, right? Or if they're just completely innocent, right? They don't deserve to die for those things, right? I think we, I would hope we'd be able to agree on all that stuff. Um, it's a, it's a really tragic case. And it looks like this, you know, Tyree Nichols had also been, a, you know, an activist. Um, it's just, uh, it, it's just horrible. And uh, the announcement came that the Memphis police uh, are planning on releasing the video of this to the public today, uh, this evening. Um, and apparently the video that will be released is going to include body cam images. In addition, I guess there had been some other uh, video that was taken on the scene. Um, so be prepared. Um, be prepared for the responses to this. And this is going to be another one of these moments of like reckoning with the way the turn that policing has taken in this country. And look, I, sh I shouldn't even phrase it in that way. I said, like, say, we'll just talk about the way that policing is, is done in this country. Right. And again, I'm not saying that every police officer is bad. That is not the point. The point is structurally Right. Militarized policing coupled with systemic racism. Right. And dramatic inequality produces these kind of things. Right. Or at least let's say it kind of encourages that direction, encourages this kind of violence. Um, and, you know, and it's endemic right in this in in our country. I mean, just to, like you look at the series of mass shootings that just took place in California, right? I mean, in my mind, those things are linked, right? Yes, that ones in California were not police shooting people, but the the mentality that violence is the way that we deal with difference, the way that we deal with disagreement, the way that we deal with um, understanding our kind of like different trajectories or opinions about way things should go, whatever it might be, violence is increasingly becoming the way, uh, especially of, re of reactionary forces. Um, so we have it there. And I, you know, I'm thinking a lot about this stuff too, as well. And, you know, for those of you who've been listening to the show for a while, know that um, I'm, you know, I'm teaching this, this class this semester called uh, Rhetoric, Democracy and Advocacy. And, you know, one of the things we talk about, right, we talked about in the first week of classes was how, you know, one of the features of democracy, right, is the baseline agreement that we're going to settle disputes um, through argumentation as opposed to violence. Um, and in order, um, and one of the requirements, and we're going to read this, uh, we're reading this article a little bit later on by this uh, woman by the name of Patricia Roberts Miller, and she's 
you know, basically says, you know, one of the things that um, one of the barriers to any kind of, say, democratic culture, or the deeping into the democratic uh, kind of tradition is, uh, you know, intimidation and, and violence or threats of violence um, by the forces that are opposed to, you know, ha everybody having a say. So that's going to be big. Right. Um, kind of moving forward in this country about uh, how we address those questions of systemic violence. Uh, and of course, you know, it should be a no surprise to anybody that uh, the reactionary forces around right now, um, particularly on the right, um, are looking to stem any kind of discussion of that kind of systemic violence, especially when it comes to race, when it comes to gender, when it comes to, you know, uh, anything that is not white kind of Christian American. Right. Um, and the the violence or the threats of violence or the threats of retaliation. Right. This is the case which we'll talk about in the second segment today when we're talking about central bucks. Um, when, you know, if the threat, even if the threat is not kind of physical violence directly. Right. The threat of losing your job, the threat of, um, you know, being thrown, you know, kind of into this kind of precarious situation because you decide to put a quote from a Nobel laureate up in your office, <laughs> right? One that speaks to social justice and fairness and equality and equity, right? Um, that's, that's something right there for you. So, so we shall see, um, you know, I imagine what's going to happen in Memphis is that the police, and this is kind of like the cycle of violence again, right? The police are going to prepare for war tonight. And they're going to assume that uh, there is going to be riots and they are going to militarize the streets. And we've seen this happen again and again and again, where our streets are turned into battlefields, right? Um, you know, as as Dr. Martin Luther King himself said, right, you know, riot is the language of the unheard. Um, and again, I'm not sitting here condoning, you know, vandalism or something like that. I'm not condoning, but I'm saying you got to understand where this stuff comes from. Right. And our readings of this have to be informed by that. So it is quite a time. Um, there was this great piece in The Intercept. Uh, I don't know how many people caught it. Um, it was by Akila Lacey, and it's a, it's called Centrist Democrat PAC. Um, sole funder is a Republican mega donor, and that mega donor is the one and only Jeffrey Sachs. Um, so, um, what is this? All right, so just this is something that we should be aware of again as uh, what's going to influence the next round of elections, particularly on the national level. Um, I'm going to read a little bit from this, uh, kind of tease it a little bit for you and encourage you to go check it out. Um, again, it's a piece in The Intercept. So this is how, um, this is the opening of it. Say a cadre of moderate Democrats and Republicans are joining together to revamp a political action committee to fight against progressive primary challenges to establishment Democrats. Now, the key important thing here is that notice that it's moderate Democrats and Republicans are working together in order to do this thing, right? Um, and... So it's not one of the it's not one of these situations in which we have um, this kind of right wing billionaire that is creating this kind of front group in order to do this. But we've got a segment of our uh, of, of Democrats and Republicans who are working together in order to make sure that no more progressives get elected. Right. 
The article goes on with President Joe Biden's former campaign manager as the PAC's only consultant and a defense contractor executive as its treasurer. The moderate pact, that's what it's called, not to be confused with an older called like the moderate Democrats pact. No, this is called the moderate pact. It stands to be an exemplar of the Democratic Party's corporate friendly centrist wing. Its financial heft, though, comes from the other side of the aisle. So far, Republican mega donor Jeffrey Yass, uh, the richest man in Pennsylvania, is virtually the only one putting money into the group. Quote, the corporate-backed establishment will stop at nothing to prevent more bartenders, nurses, principals, community organizers, and regular people from entering the Democratic Party in Congress, unquote. Justice Democrats Executive Director Alexander Rojas said in a statement to The Intercept. Quote, they would rather buy elections than let working-class progressives even run. They will do everything in their power to make themselves richer at the expense of robbing poor and working-class Americans. Axios reported last week that the PAC planned to raise $20 million to fight off Democratic primary challengers in 2024 and to, quote, scare off progressive groups like uh, Justice Democrats that have backed several successful primary challenges and helped create a growing squad of progressive lawmakers in Congress. The article did not mention the group's ties to the Biden campaign and the defense industry, nor the Republican funder. A little bit further, um, Ty Strong, the moderate PAC's president and founder, worked for a decade as a financial and business management an analyst at Booz Allen Hamilton before joining a smaller financial firm in Pennsylvania in 2020 that, closely abruptly, that closed abruptly the following year. He joined the moderate PAC in October 2021. The committee's treasurer, Mary Sue Strong, is a financial officer at ProSync Technology Group, a defense contractor that provides IT services to the federal government. Ty Strong did not respond to questions about his political experience or whether he and Mary Sue are related, though public records suggest that they are. In an op-ed for the Wall Street Journal last January, Ty Strong criticized what he called, quote, Democratic circular firing squad, unquote, and, quote, progressive purity test, unquote, that have threatened the political careers of centrist Democrats like Senators Mark Kelly and Kirsten Sinema in Arizona. If Democrats in purple states can't find a way to pivot back to the center and avoid the death by circular progressive firing squad, Strong wrote, get ready for Republican control of both houses of Congress in 2023. Less than a year later, Cinema announced that she was leaving the Democratic Party to become an independent. The article goes on. So I thought this was a, an important article to flag, in part because of the influence that, Gre that Jeffrey Yass has had um, in Pennsylvania, uh, in particular in the promoting of you know, the uh, the you know, the CRT scare and these kind of right wing school board elections um, that is happening across the state um, and, you know, and throughout the country. Um, but he's had a disproportionate impact in this state. Um, he basically virtually funded the Republican um, uh, state Senate campaign um, up in the Lehigh Valley, um, basically becoming the, you know, virtually the only donor um that was able to kind of elect a kind of a right-wing school board member <laughs> right um from the uh the parkland school district um, um to take that seat right away from say uh who after he beat the kind of moderate pat brown um in that election um and of course went on to you know uh to victory in those that's the pennsylvania 10th um senate district 
And that's a Jeffrey Yass project, right? And the primary concern there is the privatization of public schools. That is Jeffrey Yass's primary concern. And with that privatization is also the quote unquote freedom not to have to talk about history um, in its entirety. Um, to do what Hillsdale College said, as I kind of mentioned in the lead in for today, is to basically do whatever the hell they want and discriminate at will and to push their version of kind of what America is supposed to be. Um, so here we have it now, too, as well as to notice that uh, Jeffrey Yass is not only kind of um, focused on that one particular issue, right, but is also looking to tilt the balance of power um, kind of uh, increasingly in the favor of corporate Democrats. Um, and we've had this discussion multiply, you know, on this show kind of, you know, virtually every week, right, uh, about that kind of the need to also reform what is happening within the Democratic Party to ensure that um, that the Democratic Party doesn't kind of go back in the direction of these kind of conservative and kind of corporate policies um, that has taken it away from labor, has taken it away from the working class, that has taken it away from, uh, um, you know, the needs of basically everyday, everyday Americans um, and toward this kind of consultant class, toward this Wall Street class, toward this, you know, um, the interest of the powerful, right? So we've seen kind of really positive moves both here in Pennsylvania and across the country, um, kind of electing, you know, in some cases, yes, very progressive folks like AOC, right? Pro folks like Cori Bush, right? Uh, folks like Ilhan Omar, um, who have become not only kind of, you know, elected, but have won re-election by huge margins and have ha had a significant impact in particular in the committees that they're working on a national basis, right? So we're seeing that impact already. And we're seeing that kind of after their victories, right? We've talked about this on the show before too, as well, how victories lead to more victories, right? It's like once that once you break the glass on things, right? Once you're able to kind of basically say, no, look, it's not impossible that those voices of the, that consultant class, which says, look, we're not gonna we're not gonna run anybody in this because you know there's no way we can win, or we're not gonna run um, a primary against this corporate Democrat, even though they voted against the labor in every um, you know every vote that's come to the floor um, because they're a Democrat, right? So we say no, okay. In a democracy, we don't just kind of choose teams, right? We choose policy, right? We want, I would suspect that most of us, if you're listening to this show, believe that our politics, our government, our policies should reflect the needs and the desires of the vast majority of people, right? The people standing in the way of that, whether they're Democrat or Republican, right, are people that we need to get out of the way, <laughs> right? One of the biggest barriers, the reason why we don't have health care for all, why we don't have Medicare for all, are not the Republicans, right? Well, I mean, the Republicans are the barrier. I mean, you know, they are the barrier, right? But what makes the difference, right, are those corporate Democrats, right, who are, have ties to, you know, the insurance lobby, right, to the hospital lobby, right, who want to keep things going as they are so they can, they can pad their own background, you know, pad their own bottom lines as opposed to the needs of the people, right, which is to have health care, right? So that's the kind of stuff that we're talking about. So definitely check out that article. Uh, it's really instructive. Uh, it doesn't have the immediate impact of where we are right now, but we're going to, uh, you know, keep, you know, keep your ears and eyes peeled for uh, that, the moderate pack. When you start seeing ads that are being run, um, I'm really curious if this pack is going to um, kind of, 
kind of dip its toe into school board elections this year. Um, so, uh, you know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to keep an eye on that. Um, my guess is that they're going to be building power and networks and raising money for 2024, um, as opposed to uh, focusing on the local elections. I mean, Jeffrey Yass can drop in, you know, I mean, he can kind of reach in his pocket and influence school board elections here. <clears throat> this seems to be a much more ambitious project that has a um, national uh, focus. Um, also been trying to keep tabs on what's happening with Paul Martino. If you recall, uh, Paul Martino uh, became really influential in the in uh, Central Bucks school board elections. Um, you know, was a kind of libertarian right wing um, critic of, you know, everything from uh, masking policy to, you know, still stoking fears of kind of critical race theory and, you know, teachers trying to convert kids into, uh, you know, into transitioning genders, you know, all this kind of stuff. I became part of that, you know, milieu, if you will, that pushed those school boards elections toward the, you know, kind of more right wing as we're seeing the results of that now. So looking and remember that in the interviews that he gave to New York Times, the interviews that he gave the New Yorker, uh, what we saw the reporting in the Philadelphia Inquirer, um, either him stating it directly or in him uh, in the reference that he makes, he keeps on suggesting that um, he's building a model of having even more influence going forward. So we're going to see where that goes. Um, there have been some other indications that, you know, that some people, um, some of the people who have had this kind of influential um, impact um, in Bucks County in particular may not be uh, dipping into politics anymore, but it, we'll see. Um, we'll see about that. We'll go on from there. Uh, anyways, this is a way of kind of closing out the section. This is just something that, you know, it's like this is this is our first week back uh, to campus um, at Kutztown University where I teach. And um, the first week back, you know, I'm reading, you know, preparing for college, preparing for school and all this kind of preparing for classes. I don't want to keep on saying this stuff. Um, and, uh, you know, we get uh, got updates from, you know, as a faculty member, I read, you know, I, we try to pay attention to what's going on at the at the uh, in the Chronicle of Higher Education, which is kind of a nation, nationwide publication about things that are happening in higher education. It tends to lean towards the kind of administrative or kind of overall stuff in that. Um, it's, uh, you know, by no means this kind of like progressive outlet or something like that for sure. Um, but it's like, you know, it's like the trade publication of the industry of higher education. So uh, when I saw this, I was just like, and I, several of my colleagues now too are like, I just can't believe this. So there's a uh, an article in the Chronicle of Higher Education. It's called New Job Comes to the College Cabinet, the Chief Experience Officer. Right. This will lead you like read you a little bit of this and let you know what the, what the, why I'm like so in despair about this. So it says a handful of universities are taking a page from the corporate world's playbook and hiring for a new senior level position, a chief experience officer. The job title is common in fields like healthcare, technology, finance and entertainment, and its duties typically involve coordinating across departments to ensure that customers have satisfying interactions with the company. Nearly 90% of the companies surveyed by the research firm Gartner in 20, 2019 employed a chief experience officer or a similar position, up from 61% in 2017. The title hasn't been widely adopted in higher education, which traditionally bristles at likening students to customers. A Chronicle search found only five universities with such a position, and a search of, and a search of job listings posted in the Chronicle over the past two years found none with that specific title. 
Despite such small numbers, the arrival of the job title in academe speaks to a larger trends like the increasing adoption of business practices in higher ed, as well as concerns about how the public's eroding opinion of the sector might be driven, at least in part, by widespread frustration when applying to enrolling in and completing college. Right? And the job, uh, this is all, since this is the PA connection here, and the job could be gaining traction. Robert Morris University in Pennsylvania became the latest to introduce a chief experience officer when it tapped a longtime student life leader to fill the role this month. All right, it's also happening at University of Utah, Williams Wood University in Missouri, and some others. So what's the issue here? Now, th this is one of the things that's, that's always frustrating when kind of talking about this stuff. And I don't want to go too in the weeds and higher ed and stuff, because I know, you know, people are like, well, that's just, you know, higher ed, blah, blah, blah. Or what's wrong with that? What's wrong with trying to make sure that people are having a good time? What this article misses, right, um, doesn't really go into in kind of an extensive way. And again, this is just kind of a, I'm glad they reported on it, believe me, doesn't go into this much away. Um, and doesn't really talk extensively about what the problem is relying upon these corporate practices are, is it misses the other side of the equation. Right. So what do I mean by that? Right. Is that the hiring or the desire to want a chief experience officer, right, is a response to a real thing, right, is a response that students are, you know, many students become increasingly dissatisfied, right, with their experience at college, right, and what's kind of happening there. Right. About their ability to get classes, about their, you know, uh, what's happening with their financial aid office and a whole bunch of other kinds of stuff. But one of the key things, right, at a place like Kutztown University and a lot of the universities that are mentioning in this piece, um, the problem is not that, you know, you've got mean staff members and the financial aid office. You know, that could be the case at some. But it's because these universities are resorting to austerity policies to downsize their labor force. Right. The reason why at Kutztown University, for example, what I have a list of 13 students right now who are trying to get into this one class that has been closed since last, you know, last October, right? This one class that I teach, trying to get in, they can't get into it. And the reason why it's closed is, well, it's because the department that I teach in, in the communications department, some other places have lost faculty. Faculty have looked around and basically said, this is, I'm not satisfied here. This is not the place for me. So I'm going to leave. And they leave. Right. And then the administration refuses to hire more. And so therefore, the remaining faculty have to try to find a way of of teaching more. Right. And of course, what that means is that you're not going you're to have certain classes that you're not going to be able to offer. And that breeds to frustration. Right. If, say, for example, and this is just an, another example that goes to the experience thing, it has nothing to do with the way that people are smiling at you, but it has everything to do with the way that the, 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 um, the corporate influence in higher ed comes through its policies of austerity. All right? I can remember when this happened first in one of the, in some of the administration buildings and some of the other buildings. Um, it used to be the fact that we would have every building on campus, right? would have uh, a custodian, right? And the custodian, there'd be like a night shift. And that over the night shift, the custodian would do, you know, everything from, you know, cleaning the, uh, you know, cleaning kind of the boards and the classrooms and mopping the floors, um, vacuuming kind of around coming in, making sure the trash is done here. And then you'd have different shifts throughout the day, which kind of you know, would be the kind of, you know, up, upkeep and maintenance of what's going on. Well, um, they got rid of a whole bunch of the custodial staff. 
right? And basically started requiring um, custodians to kind of float between buildings, right? They got a, got rid of the overnight, um, out of the overnight um, uh, shift, right? Um, to, to do all the kind of like the big cleaning for there. And so now that's got to happen piecemeal throughout the day. And plus there's not a dedicated uh, custodian per building. What does that mean? It means that you'll get um, kind of garbage cans, which are kind of overflowing and especially in the bathrooms, right? I mean, sometimes that when, you know, the first couple rounds of, uh, students coming in in the morning, um, they're, you know, everything, you know, especially if it's raining out or it's snowy or bad weather and they're kind of coming in the stairwells and stuff is a mess, right? It means that, you know, a lot of times that, you know, desks are all over the place. So the um, things got spilled on the floor, those spills might still be there. Right. It also means that, for example, in my where just, you know, this is obviously a personal one, but where it hits me kind of in particular is like they decided without telling anybody, apparently, that um, the custodians were going to no longer do kind of routine um, cleaning of faculty offices. Right. So and what I mean by routine is just being like they would go around to the offices, they would take, you know, take your garbage can and would dump it right as it goes around and would vacuum the floor if it looked like it needed vacuuming right and when there's like cobwebs and things like this that may have accumulated in here that go through with a duster and take that up right and again this doesn't mean like every everything's spotless and clean right i mean if you've ever been in a, like a professor's office right chances are it's not going to be full of like you know like sparkly stuff right it's going to be a little messy and things like that and that's fine right but you know do like kind of the general maintenance thing will they stop doing that right so now if you want your trash can empty, you got to you got to put it outside or empty it yourself, which they've taken away some of those um, trash cans to as well. Right. And, you know, if you want to have your your, you know, f your floor like vacuumed. Right. Just from your daily stuff, you basically got to put in a work order in order for that to happen. Right. I just choose this. I'm like, screw it. I'm just going to bring in my own little vacuum cleaner and do it. Right. And those little things add up over time. When you have austerity, you're trying to squeeze the workforce in every possible ways. Students also experience that. I mean, if you look at the PR, right, if you look at the PR glitz, and of course, the university has no problem, right, and universities have no problem hiring PR officers, right, to create these flashy, you know, um, kind of campaigns to recruit new students, right? And they have new signage to make it, everything look pretty, a new kind of painting and things like this. Anything that gives that sense of, you know, like the, you know, they used to call it years ago, they called it the mollification of higher ed, right? You know, bringing in kind of, you know, getting rid of the, um, you know, the, the localized food service and then bringing in these, you know, um, these chains, you know, or Chick-fil-A or Burger King or whatever it might be, all that kind of stuff, right, contributes to a, the, a shift away from the idea that the way that you have a quality higher education experience, right, is that you have the best and most quality education. And we've said this from the beginning, you know, a student's, you know, a faculty's working conditions. We say this about the staff, the staff's working conditions are the student's learning conditions. All right. This is true in public schools. This is true, true in higher ed. What this chief experience offer, officer does, it points to the fact of missing where the problem is or a kind of a willful neglect of what the issue is, is the fact that the kind of concern is a direct result of what they are doing to higher education. And of course, <clears throat> this is an issue right now as the, the faculty at, at the State System of Higher Education, um, um, we are in contract negotiations right now. Um, and uh, all these issues about 
the inadequate funding, the inadequate hiring, the understaffing, forced understaffing by the Chancellor of Higher of State Civil Higher Education, by the way, all that forced understaffing, all that is kind of um, not even being kind of discussed. It's really trying to think out how do you have a better experience, right? Well, you know, at some point the rubber hits the road, right? And uh, so see, see that some colleges are basically deciding to, well, instead of really investing into what, you know, the, the educational experience, which means highly qualified faculty that are there, smaller classes to work with students, all that, instead of investing in that, what they're going to invest in are more high paid administrators, right? The funny thing about it, of course, is that in a lot of things, you look at every study that's come out of the Chronicle Education otherwhere, they call it administrative bloat. And they have pointed to this trend for decades about when the, when administrators look at say, oh, we've got this problem on campus. Their first thing is not like, let's talk to faculty, let's figure out how we can fix this or what do they need in order to make these programs successful. Their first thing is like, well, I think we're going to need a new administrator to handle that. And they'll hire that. And of course, one administrator could pay for four faculty members. So whatever. So that's my note on a high note um, before we take a little break. Uh, we come back and take a look at what's happening here in Bucks County, in particular in some of the school boards. Um, we shall um, be back in a short minute. Um, want to remind you, everybody, that uh, you can help support this show and you can help uh, keep our programs going. Uh, we're probably going to have some exciting news to talk about next week, uh, but I'm going to put that on ice until it actually happens and we actually... Uh, um, I've got it to roll. I'm very excited about some uh, projects, um, some collaborative projects that I'm working on right now. And um, it's going to be I'm going to be psyched to be able to share that with you. So um, that'll be wait that for next week. But anyways, you can help support the show by heading over to patreon.com slash RC press. You become a patron for as little as five dollars a month. You drop us that kind of uh, membership and you'll keep this programming coming and you'll keep the uh, great engagement supported. Thank you. We'll be back right after this quick break. Right back. I'm Rick Smith, and this is Labor History in Two. On this day in labor history, the year was 1950. The cost of a first-class stamp was three cents. And starting on this day, one of the options for first-class postage bore the image of U.S. labor leader Samuel Gompers. The British-born Gompers was a founder and longtime head of the American Federation of Labor. The Postal Service authorized 112 million copies of the Gompers stamp. He was not the only labor leader to be commemorated with a stamp. A. Philip Randolph, head of the first National Black Union, the Brotherhood of Sleeping Car Porters, was honored in 1989. Five years later, George Meany, who led the AFL-CIO for nearly two decades, was featured. Cesar Chavez, the co-founder of the United Farm Workers, was pictured in 2003. In 2013, the U.S. Postal Service issued a series of stamps titled Made in America, Building a Nation. This set of stamps featured 12 historic black and white photos of men and women at work. One was of a welder working on the Empire State Building. Others featured a miner, a textile worker, and a railroad worker. The stamps included 11 images by Lewis Hine, a famous photographer of working people. Secretary of Labor Tom Perez said, stamps are like a miniature American portrait gallery. They are an expression of our values and a connection to our past. That's why it's so fitting that this series depicts Americans at work. These iconic images tell a powerful story about American economic strength and prosperity. These men and women and millions like them really did 
build a nation. If you could pick one working class image to be featured on a stamp, what would you choose? A politician, a labor leader, or a nurse, construction worker, or postal worker? Labor History in Two brought to you by the Illinois Labor History Society and the Rick Smith Show. For more information, go to laborhistoryin2.com. We're back. Woo. Yes, indeed. Yes, indeed. Um, all right. So I didn't put a whole lot of stuff on here for our PA focus here because I just thought wanted to um, kind of shine a light on what's happening here um, and the ongoing school wars here in Bucks County. Um, <clears throat> so there's a few things that I want to talk about. One, uh, I do want to get into this uh, excellent piece that came out from... Um, Emily Rizzo from WHYY, uh, she wrote this great piece called Central Bucks School Board Has Ties to a Christian Nationalist Group and is Considering the Removing Four LGBTQ Books from Its Libraries. If you have not read this piece, um, absolutely kind of make sure that you read it. Um, Emily Rizzo, of course, has been doing absolutely bang up reporting um, on the, what's happening in the school district, what's happening in Bucks County. And this one is no... Um, no less the case. Um, but before I get to that, um, one of the things you want to say that this just came up, you may have seen this, um, but the, um, the, uh, sorry, I'm looking to make sure I have this up so I can read it. In Central Bucks, um, this is the Central Bucks South High School, um, a librarian there was um, basically asked to take down a quote that he put up right now this quote was given to him by his daughter right and i'll read you this thing this is a great piece in uh the inquirer uh the philly inquirer right um and it says, oh, as she studied Ellie Wiesel's uh, Ellie Wiesel's acceptance speech for the nobel prize um in eight, 1986 mac um um Pessick's, I hope I have his name right, Mac, Matt Pessick's daughter, a ninth grader at Central Bucks School District, sent him a quote by the Holocaust survivor that she said made her think of her father. Quote, and this is the quote, quote, I swore never to be silent whenever and wherever human beings endure suffering and humiliation. We must always take sides. Neutrality helps the oppressor, never the victim. Silence encourages the tormentor, never the tormented, unquote said the author of more than 50 books, including Knight. Quote, when your daughter says that, I'm like, that's a great quote to hang up, said um, Pesic, a high school librarian in the district. Pesic displayed the quote in a library's window in Central Bucks South on Monday. On Wednesday morning, he said, his principal asked him to take it down, saying it violated the new policy that bans staff from advocating beliefs on, quote, partisan political or social policy issues to students. Pesic said he has asked that uh, what would happen if he didn't comply, prompting an awkward silence. He was told that he would be notified later of the consequences. At the end of the school day, he took it down. He said, and it broke my heart. By midday on Thursday, Pesic said his principal told him that he could restore the quote, which he planned to do. And the district said in a statement Thursday that Knight had long been part of the district's curriculum and that Pesic was, quote, asked by the administration to present the quote in conjunction with Mr. Wiesel's book in order to promote educational inquiry and student interest in reading the novel or to take it down. 
And they, the district said, we regret that decision was made to remove it. Now, this is like right ahead of Holocaust, of the National Day of Remembrance for the Holocaust, right? Um, and focus on this. And the district says, apologize for any hurt or concerns that it's caused. I don't know what they think should be expected. I mean, this is precisely what their policy was targeting. Right. And here's the interesting thing about this, uh, about the way that this policy works. Now, you remember Central Bucks, unlike Penridge and Central Bucks, what they did is they kind of altered some of the language a little bit. They took out the specific stuff against gender. Right. Because in the original policy, they basically said, you don't want anything that can basically uh, speak to kind of gender awareness or gender. And why did they take that out? Because their lawyers said, because remember, they're being sued. Because their lawyers told them, well, look, gender is a protected class in the Constitution. So you could be opening yourself up for lawsuits. So they removed that specific language, but kept the policy intact. Now, as we talked about on the show before, the reason why they do that, right? The reason why, number one, it's good that we know about that. Because it tells you the intention behind the school board's actions, the intention behind the actions, right, was to target LGBTQ youth and any expression that would be kind of seen supportive of that to create a safe space for those students or even acknowledge their existence, which is really what the issue is. And that comes on the wake of the school board railing against CRT, critical race theory, Right. Railing against the teaching of a true understanding of racism and systemic racism, racism in this country and looking at history in all of its muckiness. Right. And so they didn't want that. They wanted. No, we want we don't want that kind of discussion. We want an America that is white and Christian. We do not want that. We can say the slavery existed, but that was in the past. We're all looking forward because now that's we don't think about that anymore. We can no longer we will not make a connection between the systemic inequities and racism in our society today and the history of this country. No, the history of this country is great, period. That's what they wanted. All right. These are the same people who were the kind of covid deniers, the anti-maskers. Right. These are the same people. who are supported by the kind of like, the, you know, those QAnon or QAnon adjacent people in the community who have cozied up to the Trump wing of the Republican Party, that right wing kind of neo-white supremacist version of American Republican Party right now. They're the ones who crafted this policy. And the way that we see it implemented is going to be consistent with those intentions. What do I mean by that? I don't know who that principal was who made that decision. Okay. I don't know what that principal's politics are. I don't know what that principal's kind of like what's in his true heart or whatever it means. But let's just say for the sake of argument that that principal is worried about their job. Okay. And that's the only motivation. Again, I don't know that that's true. But I'm going to say that this new policy comes down 
And they basically say that there could be repercussions for you, teacher, principal, librarian, if you violate this policy. And so now I'm the principal and say that I'm just like, all I care about is my job and I'm really scared and I'm a bit of a coward. Okay. Let's just say that's who I am. And so I'm sitting there and, and somebody tells me, right. Some sort of right-wing student tells me or another teacher who's really scared for their job. and just wants to kind of like, just follow the rules says, Hey, did you see, um, did you see what, uh, did you see what Matt has in his window? He's got that quote from Ali Vissel, you know, and it says like, we always have to take sides and neutrality helps the oppressor, never the victim. Are we going to get in trouble? And the principal also being kind of like, want to follow the rules and scared for their job and a bit of a coward, basically he's like, holy crap. We can't let that happen. If anybody finds out about the, I, I don't want to have to, I don't have to deal with that school board. Okay, so I'm going to go, I'm going to on to Matt and I'm going to tell him to take it down. Right? And then he puts on his strong principal hat and walks down to Matt and says, hey, Matt, that's got to come down. That's a new policy. That violates it. And Matt does the thing that you would hope you think, well, well, what are the consequences if I don't? And the principal's like, well, you'll still see. I'll let you know. Now, Matt, Matt Pesic, right, also kind of an aware human being and also thing like this, also is concerned for his position. He's devastated because that meant something to him that was coming from his daughter. It's coming from someone. It's a quote from a person who they read in their own curriculum. But because it might be seen as having progressive implications, he tells them to take it down. That's the purpose of the policy right there. And the thing is, right, I, I can't wait to hear what happens. I cannot wait to hear what happens when somebody starts telling people to start getting rid of their Trump stuff or getting rid of their American flags or getting rid of their crosses or getting rid of things that somebody just happens to feel could be construed as some right-wing propaganda. Right? The policy was... Look, here's the thing. Progressives, right, or let's say normal people, understanding that education, part of what happens in education is making things kind of uncomfortable and that people are going to have their viewpoints, right? There are already kind of prohibitions, right? Teachers know this when they sign their contracts, right? I certainly know there are prohibitions there are political prohibitions about against politics in the classroom. But what that means, right, it means that you may not advocate for a particular candidate or political party 
right, in a way that puts pressure upon them. If you are advocating for a particular candidate or political party, that is something that has long been considered to be outside the purview of what should be happening in the classroom. Okay? The idea that we're supposed to just kind of like, this is why I think, you know, again, somebody got freaked out about Elie Wiesel's quote because it says, neutrality helps the oppressor, never the, evic never the victim. Because in a sense, that's what the policy pretends to do, right? It says, we should just let all, all sides just kind of, we're just neutral on this. I'm a teacher. I'm walking into the classroom and, oh, I, I, yeah, I know. Look, look, here, over here, we see like uh, um, the historic legacy of, of slavery and the brutality and the rape and the, everything that took place as part, of that, as part of that history. But over here, we've just got kind of some like, you know, plantation owners who are kind of just like, you know, doing the best they can in the system that they have to try to make themselves a new world. Who's to know? What do you think? I don't know. They're equal. They're all the same. We can't talk about why slavery needed to be banned, was wrong, is wrong, continues to be wrong, right? And why the ownership of other human beings is fundamentally wrong. That is a stance. But it is also a stance that is at the core of what it means to live in a democratic society. The core right in a democratic society is that we are human beings and have a right to be heard. And power emanates from the people. And it means also that, does it mean that everything goes? No, it means that within the parameters of democracy, that means, so within the parameters of democracy, look, we have all different kinds of positions and ideas about stuff, right? We're not going to agree on all the stuff. That's what democracy does, right? Democracy does not say there is no conflict. It's not some sort of weird utopia where everybody just thinks the same, Right. That's some sort of kind of neo-fascist techno future that, you know, that God forbid, I hope doesn't exist ever. What we're talking about here is we're talking about a democratic society. And one of the principles at the core of democracy, right, is who gets excluded from that society? The only people that are excluded from a democratic society should be those ones who do not accept the basic premise that other people have the same rights that you do. If you are for the eradication or the erasure of a certain group of people, that is an anti-democratic ethos. That is an ethic, that is a philosophy that is directly opposed to democracy. At its core. That is why it is so fundamentally problematic that you have in CB, like in, in Central Buck School District, in Penridge School District, right? We're having similar echoes now. We're hearing up in Souderton. We're having things are happening in Quakertown. We, what all that, that is why the attacks against LGBTQ community through their erasure, there can no longer be proud flags. There could be no longer be signs that say this is a safe space. Pretending they're not there. We heard from those students, right? We talked about this last week. Where those Penridge students say, it feels like I've been erased. That is, those are the seeds of fascism right there. 
That is why LEV Cell says neutrality helps the oppressor, never the victim, in the face of that. And that is why the right-wing school board members at Central Buck School District and the Penridge School District and other school districts around this area, around the, the Commonwealth and around the nation, are attempting to erase particular groups because they want quote-unquote, democracy only for themselves, which is not democracy. Or it's a bastardized version of democracy. We know those fundamental contradictions that existed at the beginning of this nation. We know that this nation, part of what the kind of like the westward expansion and the kind of like the, the new world meant was the eradication and the genocide of indigenous people of this land. That is a fact that is not up for debate. That is not an opinion. That is not a feeling. That is a fact. Which means even as there was a projection of de democratic values, democratic words, right, through the foundation of the American Republic. It also was at the same time hypocritical at its core. And then as the slavery economy began, again, hypocritical at its core, as its exclusion of women, hypocritical at its core. The promise of democracy, however, is though that social movements that people will constantly push on those hypocrisies, those absences, those gaps, and ensure that it expands. Ian Angus, in one of the books that I'm reading for my class this morning, in this book called The Emergent Public, calls, you know, you're always basically remaking. You're always going further. You never accept that you finished. It's always an unfinished project because... The idea is we have to constantly evaluate where we are, who is currently being excluded under what terms, and then how do we rectify that situation. That is a history of the American Republic, in my view, that is worth telling. And that is the story that these people on these school boards are seeking to undermine, suppress, and silence. And it's not just the story, right? It's the bodies, it's the people, it's the individuals that are being erased. Their identities, their selves, their sense of being, their humanness is being erased. That's the core stake in that policy at Central Books is to start to take away the language which acknowledges that people want more to be part of this democracy and instead wind back the clock and install this white Christian myth of a culture of what is America. That's what the fight is, right? The fight is ultimately over who we are. And those people 
wanted to be for them and for them only at the exclusion of the rest of us. It is the one of the core tensions always in a democratic culture, whether a democratic society will survive and thrive or whether it will fall rests on that basic presumption. Do we expand and recognize the core fundamental humanness and rights of people to participate and be who they are? And having to listen, we might not agree, but having to listen and accept their basic right to say what they have to say to as well. The only exception, what's the only exception? If what my movement is trying to do is eradicate another one, is to erase somebody else. And that's the core, right? By standing up, by supporting LGBTQ students, right? There's no erasure of anyone else. By the recognition of the horrors of systemic racism in this country, nobody is erased. You're not saying purge white people's history from history. No. You're going to say, we've had that story. We're going to add some more, more parts of the story. We're going to fill it out. We're going to tell new stories from different perspectives. So we're not saying get rid of that story. The story is still there. We're expanding it. Why? Because human beings are not all identical, right? That our histories, our perspectives, like our experiences are not all, all, all the same. And if we want, again, a democracy is supposed to rule by the people. If we want what happens in our democracy to reflect the people, that all those stories need to be part of our training for citizenship, right? I mean, this is just the core basic stuff. And that's fundamentally what's at stake in these school boards. With these school boards seeking to roll back the clock, not just on the curriculum, but on what is happening in America itself. And you listen to some of these folks in private and they're saying just as much as that. It's not a coincidence that at the same time this stuff is happening, we see the rise of white nationalism. We see the rise of neo-fascist movements, not just here, but around the country and around the world. It's because that order wants it only for themselves. And when other stories want to say, no, we want some too, they want to suppress them, want to deny their existence erase them. The reason why Hitler called it the final solution, right? You know, this myth that we're the we're just going to we're going to kill them all and then everything's going to be great. Of course it's a freaking ridiculous lie to begin with. But they called it the, the idea is like, okay, we try to erase them in our mind. We try to erase them in our laws. We try to erase them by keeping them in these one particular part. Well, that didn't work, so we're just going to kill them all. Anybody who doesn't agree with our perspective, with our version of this future, we're just going to eliminate. That was that. That is to me the most extreme version of what is happening on our school boards right now. <laughs> it's a continuum, right? And that's why, I mean, again, that's why people are standing up and fighting it. That's why it was like incredible to see these, you know, these students uh, showing up at Central Bucks West last week um you know uh fighting 
against these kind of policies. Right? There was uh, I want to pull this up real quick. Hold on a second. Oh my gosh. Something is up. I don't know if other people are having this. The beacon, the beacon site has been behaving strangely for me um, of late. I'm not sure what that's about. Um, I don't know if that's my computer or if that is something that's happening with the web page. I got to talk to Cyril about that. Anyways, um, you know what we what we saw. Like I, I mentioned this kind of at the top of the show too as well. Is that Beacon's got a great photo essay. Um, on this protesting place. And look, there were students, there were teachers, there were community members that showed up um, on Friday. Um, for that's like There were two protests last week, and this was an opposition to the uh, school board's majority's support of Policy 321, which bans the pride flags and muscles teachers, uh, precisely just what we were just talking about. Right? So having said that, I want to stay on Central Bucks for one more, uh, for one more thing. So... So in addition to what we have kind of going on there with this library, so this was the excellent report that came from uh, Emily Rizzo and WHYY. Um, and I'll, again, if you haven't read this, I'm sorry if I'm repeating this for you, but here is a, here's a piece from, uh, a bit from her piece uh, called Central Buck School Board has ties to a Christian nationalist group and is considering removing four LGBTQ books from its library. All right, here it is. Uh, Central Buck School District is taking steps that could lead to a ban of up to five books from school libraries, according to an email obtained by WHYY News. The email refers to book challenges, which is terminology used by the Central Buck School District regarding a new district policy that allows any parent or district resident to request a book be removed from library shelves. Quote, we have five book challenges and we'll need to form reconsideration committees for each of these books, um, unquote, wrote a district employee in an email to district librarians dated December 1st, 2022. This would be the first test of the controversial um, library book policy which aims to ban books deemed, quote, inappropriate for including, quote, sexualized content. Recent updates to the policy were renewed by, were reviewed by a conservative Christian law firm, Independence Law Center, as first reported by the Bucks County Courier Times. The Independence Law Center is the legal arm of the Pennsylvania Family Institute, which is a statewide branch of the national organization, the Family Research Council, an anti-LGBTQ Christian nationalist group designed, uh, designated as an extremist hate group by the Southern Poverty Law Center. The move calls into question the separation of church and state within a public school district. Andrew Seidel, Vice President of Strategic Communications for Americans United for Separation of Church and State, said, quote, a public school um, system should not be exporting a review of its, um, of its literature to a Christian nationalist organization or affiliated organization. It is going to be imposing this anti-LGBTQ Christian nationalist ideology on public school children, and that's a huge problem, unquote. The board approved the original library book policy in, in July 2022, and the district shared details of the updates last week. According to the updates sent to parents, once the district receives a challenge, a complex process begins. The updates, start, um, the updates state that a committee made up district staff reviews the book and gives the school board a findings report. But during that time, the district superintendent can remove the book. The final decision rests with Republican-majority school board. Rich Ting, an attorney with the ACLU of Pennsylvania, said that based on the policy, Superintendent Abe Lukabal, quote, has unilateral power to just remove a book, unquote. And the regulations were designed 
um, to allow the board majority, quote, to control whatever content they want to get out, unquote. All right. And the article goes on. I don't want to I don't want to kind of like spoil the entire article. Right. You should go out and you should read her work. Um, but there's there are two things here. One, we see that. Remember that there were denials. They're basically look, a school board just can't just remove it. There's a process and all that. But nope, we find out. Nope, no. In the details, once you get in the details, no, the school board can actually remove it. And matter of fact, you have, oh, I don't know, an authoritarian model of book banning. That is one person, Abe Lukabal, superintendent, has the authority to remove a book at his whim outside of a democratic process. See, even the process subverts democracy. Not to mention, like, the bombshell in this piece which that the board is basically contracting with a Christian nationalist law firm or a Christian, or a, well, let's, let's put it exactly as she says it here, as a conservative Christian law firm with ties to a Christian, national Christian nationalist organization. How about that? The Family Research Council has, is like a known quantity they are the far right of the far right. They are Christian nationalists at their core. And they are the ones who are being consulted about book banning. That should tell you everything you need to know. And your tax dollars, Central Buck School District, is paying for Christian nationalist lawyers to review the policy that your freaking kids in your community is being educated by. It's just unbelievable. So kudos to Emily Rizzo for this. I'm glad she caught the freaking district in a lie by pretending that this is, oh, no, no, it's a challenge of the process. No, but that the school board can do what the hell they want. And they gave themselves that power to do that because they got the majority, thanks to people like Paul Martino and other right-wing funding folks who stoked the fears of hatred in our communities and poured tons of money into campaigns to make sure that they would control the policy apparatus of the school district. Unbelievable. The good thing is that, you know, the the Central Bucks community is not going quietly, <laughs> to say the least. And the protests that you just saw this past week, those amazing folks that turned out for those protests, that's not the end, folks. I'll just tell you that. We're going to just see this ramp up. And especially, this is a school board election year, right? That's all channeled in to that goal, right? So here we go. So in other news, again, down uh, follow uh, Route 313, a little bit further east and north, and you end up at the Penridge School District. And... And I, I'm pretty sure I got the dates right on this. I think it was January, let me see if it was 17th, 16th, I think it was. Um, there was a school board meeting and much to the surprise of people who had come there, because this wasn't on the agenda or wasn't something that was issued there for public consideration like that. A slide comes up on a curriculum committee um, post, right? Because, uh, like, look, we've got enough people. There's enough people in the community now who know that you got to be paying attention to what's happening to the school boards because they're just going to run roughshod over everything. And so a slide comes up 
and says additional resources for unit development. This comes as they're trying to eliminate uh, at least one of the courses for in social studies. Right. It comes at a time when you have the right wing school board led by kind of, you know, insurrectionist uh, um, um, Joan Cullen um, and her kind of like team of either, you know, people who are competing for who's like further right. Right. Slide comes up and basically says the social studies supervisor and social studies teacher will go through a process of overlaying the Hillsdale 1776 curriculum over the current curriculum to add additional information where appropriate in the following categories, terms and topics, essential questions and content and keys to the lesson. And there are people about that meeting like, wait, 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 what? What just happened? And thank God we have enough people who have been digging into this stuff and are kind of recognizing the connection to these right-wing politics to flag that and say, what, what is going on with this? The Hillsdale College 1776 curriculum. Like, if you look at what happened with just that law firm in Central Bucks we just talked about, Hillsdale College is basically the kind of like Christian nationalist version of this at a, at a, at a college level <laughs> in an education realm. Right. Remember back to Jenny Cohen's piece, right? Jenny's Cohen piece in the Bucks County Beacon that talked about this kind of dominionism, the attacking the seven mountains. We need to control the seven mountains, education being one of them, the media being another one. Hillsdale College is on that plan. They are there. They are going after education. They are going after media and more and the, and the judicial system. Right. They are. OK, we're going to train people to go after and take those mountains. Right. And one of the ways that they did this, look, Hillsdale College, the one thing, I mean, they went private. Like I said, they they have no federal, they don't get any federal funds so that they could discriminate against anybody who they want to. They get backing of people like Betsy DeVos, you know, Trump's Department of Secretary of Education, Secretary, you know, Secretary of Education, Betsy DeVos, you know, that right wing kind of crazy and all these other kind of like privatization, public schools, Christian nationalist educators, all of them fund, help fund that Hillsdale College. And they've long been, for those folks on the left who've been, who follow this stuff, we've long been, if you, I mean, Rick Smith at the Rick Smith show has been kind of pointing to Hillsdale College years ago. I mean, I remember sitting down, I think we were at, we were at some kind of conference or something like this. And Rick and I were sitting there just talking and he's like, it's like Hillsdale, the Hillsdale College thing. I'm like, what are you talking about? And he told me about what their project, this is, again, this is well before the pandemic. This is long time. This is how long Hillsdale College has been at this. And he was telling me, he's like, look, any one of these right-wing talkers, right, that want to get really important guests um, in D.C. can get them. And the reason why they can get them is because Hillsdale College has set up a studio for right-wing talkers, right? And because Hillsdale College is connected to this funding network of these right-wing folks who fund the same politicians that occupy those halls of Congress, right, you got some kind of rando podcaster like me Right. If I was on the right wing connected to that network and connected to that Hillsdale College, I could go down there, make a few calls. You got a secretary who's there ready to make the calls to those people to get them on my show. And those people, the politicians, the influencer, they're like there are willing to come on the show because they know it's connected to money. And the right wing talker basically gets the numbers because they have access to a professional studio that's paid for by Hillsdale College and those right wing donors. 
right? They built out the infrastructure. And then if you went to Hillsdale College, I remember after Rick told me this, I started kind of investigating this. Hillsdale College, they have a program, like an academic program. You can major in basically talk radio. And the major basically shows you, here's what we're doing. We are training the next generation of right-wing media people. And here's access to all our resources. And of course, there they got big pictures of the nice studio they have in D.C. in addition to their own college radio. They have a college radio station that puts to shame any public radio station that in, in our communities, not the national offices in D.C., right? Uh, but, you know, you got, it just like... It's like the college radio station. Are you serious? This is a college radio station. And you basically have completely updated professional equipment and trainers and producers and everything there to work with it. And they're training those kids to do that. They're also doing that in the legal front. They're also doing it in the education front and right down, down the road. So they're training people for it. They're spending money to influence it. So... After, you remember this, seventeen, the 1619 Project comes out from the New York Times to mark the 500th anniversary of the first slave ship that landed on the shores of this country in Virginia. Right, An amazing project, 1619 Project, which is actually now, it's a, uh, it's a uh, documentary series on, I don't know if it's on public, I don't know if it's on PBS or if it's Netflix. Or something. I'm not sure. Actually, it's funny because I just want to started watching that this weekend. I was that's what was my plan. Uh, But anyways, just came out right. Um, That's been made in there. So it was basically first. It was a series that took that was uh, that was in the uh, the New York Times. Came on Sunday New York Times Magazine. Freaking excellent series. That was elaborated, extended, and made into a book. Right, and now it's a kind of a series that's working off that same thing. Right. So, the, you know, the the right wing, especially the white nationalists, right, and the kind of Christian nationalist folks got such an atizzy about this uh, about this project because it was actually wanting to tell a different story of America, not the, the America that is told, but, you know, through the kind of the legacy of kind of rich white guys, but ones that was told from the kind of perspective of slavery, right? If we looked at the start of the American nation at that moment, at 1619 instead of 1776, like history is normally taught, what other ways that we can see? What can we see when we start to do this? What do we start telling the history from there? And what does that help us understand about where we are now? Right. That's kind of like that was that project. Well, people are so freaked out by that on the right that, you know, Trump, you know, put together a 1776 commission and put together this report like, you know, they'd hacked it together in like, you know, like a few months. Right. But it was basically like you know, the kind of the white American version of the history, the the America version of history, right? The Christian nationalist version of history that they want told about, uh, about, about this country, right? And they started basically, we're going to push this out and they pushed the report out. Um, what a hair. Well, Hillsdale College saw this. And I, I like I said, I, I firmly believe that they're intimately connected with it. After all, Betsy DeVos was there. Betsy DeVos, one of the key funders of Hillsdale College. I mean, come on. Right. So Hillsdale College basically immediately got to work and they basically said, OK, what we're going to do is that we're going to use that same 1776 moniker. We're call it the 1776 curriculum. We're going to put it together in modules. We're going to set it up so that we're going to have an entire curriculum that we can export to public schools, in particular charter schools. Right. Even public charter schools, because public charter schools are not subjected to the same rules that regular public schools are. Right. And then when you get to the for-profit charter schools, yeah, all bets are off. Even if they do get public funding, they're, all bets are off because they're private, right? Private nonprofits in some cases, whatever. 
So we have this. This is what they started doing. So now Hillsdale College, and I've been like reading all about this. There's this great piece. Um, there's this great piece uh, by Paige Williams, uh, and this came out in November. It's in the New Yorker. It's called Class Warfare. School boards are being attacked by partisan saboteurs. Uh, it's a hefty piece. Uh, it's in the New Yorker. Um, it's an excellent piece, right? So if you're looking what it looks like, this is from there. Um, this is an excellent piece. I've been reading about, I'm kind of rereading some stuff that I read several years ago on Hillsdale College um, and then reading out more. But one of the things that's fascinating, you find out what's happening in Tennessee, is because Tennessee, you've got a kind of Republican-dominated uh, legislature and you've got a conservative Republican governor. So the conservative Republican governor, again, funded by the same people that's funding all these other things, right, basically thinks, hey, you know what? Here's a good idea. We've got all these charter schools because we've pushed the school privatization stuff really hard. So we've got all these charter schools. And instead of having us run them, right, we're going to contract out the Hillsdale College to run them. And so Hillsdale College just so happens to have its own curriculum, <laughs> right, 1776 curriculum that now it's going to boom, jump into a state and take over its curriculum and its charter schools at the same time that the state works to undermine existing public schools. You see how this works? This was Betsy DeVos's plan all the time. This is what Betsy DeVos has been working on for a long time. This is about the Bradley Foundation, right? Um, that's based out of, uh, what do you call it, uh, Milwaukee. They've been working on this for years, and they were a little bit too cozy to the Obama administration, if you ask me. Um, but the Bradley Foundation pumped tons of money into the privatization and charterization of the Philadelphia public schools, for example. Right. And once you sever the rules for charter schools from those, the rules of public schools, like so, for example, you don't have the same kind of accountability in uh, in the charter schools you do for public schools. Right. Charter schools, in many cases, get to pick their own students. Right. They could basically say, well, no, uh, we're only going to choose students that are meet this particular kind of aptitude. Right. And if you're below that, well, that's just not what we're doing in this charter school. So, you know, we're not going to take this. They can exclude those students. They could exclude students with disabilities. They could exclude students who kind of might have kind of like, you know, not great kind of uh, test scores in part because they were raised they're in a, like uh, they're in an impoverished area. We know that poverty influences education. And I say, well, you know, we're going to look for ways, you know, in their back rooms they are saying we're looking for ways to exclude those students because that'll negatively affect our test scores. Right. So charters get to do that stuff. They get to pick and choose which students are in their are in their hallways. Public schools do not. Right. Charter schools have also in the state of Pennsylvania have written rules so that they get paid first before the public schools. Public schools have their budgets cut from there. And every single study that has come out. Right. On charter schools, the effectiveness of charter schools basically shows that, yeah, at best, the performance is the same. More often than not, it's not as good especially when you talk about cyber charter schools and some other ones, right? So on the whole, not very good, right? On the whole, we spent all of this money. We've sapped public schools of the resources. We've changed the way that teachers are kind of having to respond to metrics. We've uprooted our entire educational system for nothing. And we do it by dangling out that thing for parents that like, your kid deserves a shot, it's all freaking affect. Your your kid is your kid deserves more. Your kid doesn't deserve those schools. They should come to us. 
right? Takes, you know, bores right in. And so they, and they sever the rule and they get legislation written so that the same kind of provisions that they have to, the measurements that public schools are forced to abide by do not apply to the charter schools. And so you have an additional burden put on the public. You know, it's like this. It's just like, it's an incredible, incredible history. And this is like, you know, if, we've talked about on the show so many times, shock doctrine, right? Naomi Klein shock doctrine. And Naomi Klein shock doctrine is this, right? You basically do this to the public schools enough. You create a crisis and then you privatize in one fell swoop what you see what Hillsdale College did um, is doing in, 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 uh, in Tennessee. And this is a guy at the head of it, the president of this referred to in open legislative hearings. He called minority students dark ones. Blows my mind. That this is allowed to continue. And that after that, that was in Tennessee, after that, oh yeah, there's no problem keeping them. He's railing against diversity, railing against these kind of ideas that we should have diversity. Saying, no, we don't. No, we don't. We don't. Just all they want to do is count the dark ones. Unbelievable. And does he, is it because he really cares about education? Well, like I said at the top of the show, no. He was captured, right? There was kind of like either a hidden camera or a hidden microphone or something like this. So somebody was there, didn't realize that it was being recorded. And basically what happens is that he's sitting there talking to the governor of Tennessee and tells him that teachers are trained in the dumbest parts of the dumbest colleges in the country. So there you go. Don't listen to teachers because they're idiots. We have a ready packaged set of materials of curriculum that the idiots just have to follow is basically what this dude is doing. And frankly, look, all this standardized testing, all these high stake tests, all these kind of metrics and assessments and all that crap that we've been doing for the past 20 years or so funded by people like Bill Gates, right? Implemented by people like, oh, good of Arne Duncan from the Obama administration, all those kind of people, right? who insist upon these metrics and tests and all that stuff. So every time we look at a school district, we want to see how, you know, how's it rated? It's based upon these freaking metrics. All the anxiety that goes around these testings to get our kids into gifted places because we, they, they need a leg up. All that stuff prepared the groundwork to basically say, you need to take the teachers out of the equation. Because look, we already got the teachers teaching to the test, Right. So all we're asking them to do is to teach you a different set of tests, a different kind of curriculum, because we view teachers as dumb, right? That's what these people believe. They believe teachers are not professionals. Teachers don't are the kind of the, the key to good education. No, teachers are simply delivery devices. And the Penridge School District tried to slip this crap in without public hearings, without an acknowledgement of what it was, without its ties to Christian nationalist organizations. And here we are once again. And this is what they're going to run on in this year's school board elections. More Christian nationalist stuff. Crazy. 
anyways, I uh, went a little bit longer than I thought I was going to do today. But, uh, you know, uh, thank you for sticking with me. I appreciate it. Uh, thank you for your time, your support and all that. Um, this just has been it's been quite a week um, what's happening to our schools. And I just I just I don't know what to do about it. Um, I mean, well, I know what to do about it. I mean, we got to organize like hell. Right. I mean, we've got to kind of constantly draw attention to the stuff. We have to constantly <laughs> undermine the you know the theft of our democracy i mean i don't know what else to say so i was going to talk a little bit about the uh new college in sarasota that's basically implementing the uh the hillsdale model right uh wants to become the hillsdale of the south but i'm gonna put that off to another day because i've already gone long uh thank you everybody for tuning in today i appreciate the time the effort like i said i appreciate all the support get the word out about the show um and uh but keep it up. And look, as things come up in the school district, I, you know, I have to say this too. And thank you so much for uh, all those folks who are on the ground doing the organizing, um, alerting me of uh, what's happening. Right. You get this. You get information about this stuff. You let me know this kind of stuff that's going on. I'll be sure to kind of uh, kind of echo and amplify and put it on the show here. Right. That's one of the reasons why we exist is kind of like, look, want to make sure that people that are on the ground doing the work, we have a way of amplifying their voices and kind of making sure that more people get um, get access to what's happening. All right. Anyways, this is Kevin Mahoney, creator and founder of Raging Chicken. Want to remind you, you can help support the show by heading over to patreon.com slash RC press today. You can become a patron for as little as five bucks a month. Um, I'll look forward to seeing you again on Monday for Out to Coop Live. Um, I'll, again, if we actually we actually land our guest for uh, for Monday, I'll let you know as soon as I, as soon as I possibly can. Um, but we'll look forward in the weeks to come that we have on Monday, February 6th. We have Hannah Leffingwell is going to be coming on talking about her piece in the Chronicle of Higher Education about the need for fundamental change in higher ed. And we're also going to hear from Alyssa Bowen on February 13th. Um, she'll be back on the show talking about her recent piece in Truth Out called The Right Has Expanded Its Dark Money Strategy for Dominating School Boards, right in the vein of what we're talking about right here now, aren't we? All right. This is Kevin Mahoney, creator and founder. Found, founder? Founder? What's a founder? Creator and founder of uh, Raging Chicken Media. Um, have yourselves a great weekend, everybody. Um, hope you enjoy it. Hope you did okay with the snow this past week. Um, but here we go. Let's keep up the fight. Keep it going. Thanks for your support. See ya!